Hi and welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons. Today we're looking at a chapter of the Bible that is full of stories about people who trusted God. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I love to read stories of other people's lives. They can be fascinating. You get a great insight into the way people think and act. But those stories can also be inspiring and challenging. They can teach us about the world and about life. They can show us what not to do, but also what to do. Stories put flesh on the bones of bare facts. And really, that's what the chapter of the Bible that we're looking at today does. In these little scenes, these little vignettes, we get a glimpse of what faith looks like in the lives of ordinary people. We get a picture of what faith looks like, what it looks like to trust God. And we can hold those images up as models for us to follow. And we can hold those images and pictures up as models against which we can compare our own lives to see whether the life that we're living is also a life of faith. The passage that we're looking at today is Hebrews chapter 11. And if you haven't read that passage, it'd be good to pause the video now and to read that. The chapter begins with a definition of faith in verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What does that mean? Well, certainly faith involves some kind of content. We read in verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, faith is not empty hope, but it takes hold of certain facts about reality. The writer of Hebrews has shown throughout his sermon what the key facts of biblical faith are. For instance, back in chapter 1, he showed us that faith accepts Jesus as the radiant Son of God, who is the exact representation of his being. Faith accepts Jesus as the eternal Son, who was born into our world as a human being, who suffered, who died, and who rose again in order to make a way for us to draw near to God. So that whoever does draw near to God uh, through Jesus will be saved. But the writer in this chapter is not so concerned with the content of faith. He's addressed that throughout the letter so far. Here in this chapter, he's more concerned with the ramifications or the results of faith. What does it look like to have faith? Returning to verse 1, is the writer trying to say that faith is a great inner conviction about those facts? Is it this kind of inner certainty in our hearts that really, 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 really believes? That's a bit like what verse 1 sounds like, but unfortunately that translation of verse 1 puts the emphasis of faith in the wrong place. Really the words confidence and assurance are much more concrete than that. Uh, they mean things really like reality and proof. Faith is the reality of what we hope for and the proof of things not seen. Or to put it a better way, as one scholar writes, faith is living in accord with the reality of things hoped for. Or faith is living as if the things hoped for are real. Faith is living as if the things hoped for are real. 
You see, verse 1 of chapter 11 in Hebrews is really a definition more of what faith does than of what faith is. And that's borne out by the stories in the rest of that chapter. Look at Abel in verse 4. Faith led Abel to offer a better sacrifice. Why is that? Because he believed that it mattered. He believed that God was worth it and Cain didn't. And that belief led Abel to live differently. Or look at Enoch in verse 5. Enoch was taken from this life and never experienced death. Why? Because by faith he pleased God. That is, he believed that living for God mattered and so he lived differently. Or look at Noah in verse 7. Faith led Noah to build an ark. He built an ark because God told him that he was going to flood the world. And Noah took God at his word and set to work building the ark. Imagine if Noah had said, Well, God, I believe that you're going to flood the world and the only way to escape is to build an ark. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to bother. What would you think? You'd think that Noah didn't really trust God or didn't really take God at his word. But instead, we're told that Noah, in holy fear, built the ark. Or look at Abraham in verse 8. Faith led Abraham to leave everything he had and go where God told him to go. Imagine that. Imagine picking up everything that you had because God had said to do it. Imagine leaving the place where you lived, leaving behind your house and your friends and your family. Imagine doing all that just because God had told you to do it. Of course, we don't have to imagine that because there are people from our church who have done exactly that. There are people from our church who have gone to other places in the world convicted, convinced that God had told them to do it. Why did they do that? Why did Abraham do that? Because God told Abraham to go and God took and Abraham took God at his word and went. Well, think about Moses in verse 24. Faith led Moses to give up the treasures of Egypt. Egypt was a great powerhouse in ancient times, and Moses had been adopted into the house of the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh's household. Moses had at his disposal all the riches of Egypt. He could have had whatever he wanted, but Moses chose to leave all that behind and to spend his life living in the desert with people who kept complaining that the job he was doing wasn't good enough. Moses had the luxuries of the palace of Egypt, but he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. If you really believe something, it will change your life. It will change the way that you live. If you believe that you need to eat to live, uh, then you'll eat. Uh, if you don't believe you need to eat, you won't. If you believe that helmets on bikes save lives, then you'll wear a helmet. But if you believe that helmets are for sissies and that you're probably skillful enough to never have an accident, then you won't bother wearing a helmet. If you believe that COVID-19 is dangerous, then you'll take suitable precautions and follow the public health advice. If you don't believe that, then you won't do it. 
And the same is true of trusting God. You can say, I trust God as much as you like, but if your actions don't back up that claim, then it's an empty claim. That's what James means in his letter in the New Testament when he says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. The conviction of Hebrews 11 and the whole Bible is that trusting God is not something that lives in your heart and is hidden there, but trusting God is something that can be observed in your actions. And so the question for you and I is, what do our actions say about us? What do your actions say about your faith? What have you given up, for instance, because of your trust in God? What have you left behind? What have you suffered? What have you abandoned? What have you changed? What have you taken up? What have you positively done because of your trust in God? And don't just think about what you've ever done in the history of your life, but what have you changed or abandoned or taken up recently? If there's nothing to see, it probably means that there's no real genuine faith. In which case, the answer once again is not to despair of genuine faith, the answer is to draw near to God through Jesus and to seek from him that deep trust in him and his work that brings forgiveness of sins, but which also changes who you are and how you live. And please notice as well that to say that faith acts doesn't mean that we always get it right. It doesn't mean that faith is perfect. All the people mentioned in this chapter were flawed. They were sinful people. Think of Abraham. He burst out laughing when God told him that he and his wife would have a child at the age of 100. Moses, when called by God to be God's mouthpiece, didn't want to go. He didn't think he was a good enough speaker. And later on, his failure to listen to God at other times meant that Moses never entered the promised land. Well, think about Rahab. She was a prostitute. Gideon couldn't trust God, that God would give them the victory, and so he kept putting God to the test. Samson was a brute and a womanizer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. These were flawed, sinful people, but the point is that at the end of the day, they acted on the basis of their trust in God. Despite his doubts, Abraham believed and went. Despite his doubts, Moses went as God's spokesman and died in faith at the edge of the promised land. Rahab saw the writing on the wall and she left her life as a prostitute and threw in her lot with the people of the God of the Bible. Gideon struggled to trust God's power, but his doubts didn't stop him from obeying God's command. He still went out and fought. Samson, humbled and crippled by his enemies, returned to God in the last hours of his life and in his final act brought God's judgment on his enemies. David, when confronted with all the evil that he had done, acknowledged it, cast himself on the mercy of God. You see, trusting God doesn't mean that we're perfect or that we never have doubts or that we always get it right, but it means that even when we doubt, we trust God. We act on the basis of who he is and what he has promised us in Jesus. So faith or trust in God changes the way that we live. Trust in God and his promises leads us to act. But it would be a mistake to think that the power of faith rests in faith itself. And 
this chapter highlights that to us pretty clearly as well. At the beginning of this chapter, the things that people do are largely the kinds of things that they could maybe do in their own power. So offering a better sacrifice or building an ark, moving to another land. We can look at those things and maybe think to ourselves, sure, they might have needed a bit of help from God, but they could probably still manage mostly on their own. But as the chapter goes on, that idea becomes more and more impossible as the feats that are mentioned become more and more impossible. So look at verse 32. And what more shall I say, says the writer? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. The references here are to events from the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. Daniel surviving the lion's den. The victory of God's people like at uh, Jericho where they won by marching around and playing trumpets. Or like Gideon where he routed a foreign army with only a few hundred men. Or think of a story like the widow of Zarephath in Kings where God raises her dead son through the prophet Elijah. Those are the kinds of stories that are being remembered here. And none of those things that the writer remembers and draws to our attention, none of those things are the result of those people's own power. And indeed, neither are any of the acts that seem to us maybe to be more humanly doable, building an ark, moving to another place, forsaking Egypt and suffering for the sake of Christ. Those two are acts that arise from the power of God. You see, what we need to understand is that it's not just that faith changes the way that we live. That's the evidence that we live by faith, but it's not the power of faith. Faith in itself does not have any power. The power belongs to God and faith or trust is the means by which we receive God's power in our lives. Faith is not powerful in and of itself. God is powerful. Faith is powerful because the God in whom we trust is powerful. And so it's not just faith that matters, faith in anything, but it's faith or trust in God. By faith we trust that God has forgiven us in Jesus. We trust that we've been reconciled to God. That is totally beyond our power and it fundamentally changes everything in our lives. It means that we can draw near to God with confidence. It means that our lives are now ruled by God rather than ruled by us. It means that our heavenly home with God is assured. It means that death no longer has mastery over us. It means that we can trust God for resurrection from the dead. It means that we can live our lives without the daily fear of death. We don't have to worry that this might be our last day. It means we don't have to push death out of our minds. It means we can begin the day by praying, Lord, if if this is the last day that you give me on this earth to live for you, then make this 
day, the best day that I've ever lived of knowing and loving you. It means that we don't have to live our lives in fear that we won't fulfill all our dreams because we trust that one day God will raise us to life again to live with him. It means that we don't have to be afraid that we'll catch COVID-19 or, or develop cancer. We don't have to worry about those things. We don't have to live in fear because death has no mastery over us. To die is gain, Paul says. Do we believe that or don't we? Do we believe that to die is gain? By faith, we trust too that God is changing us through the Holy Spirit, bit by bit, into the image of Jesus. Oftentimes, that seems an impossible task. Our lives can be dominated by greed, impatience, selfishness, apathy, laziness, lust, whatever it is. And those things can seem seem like monsters that just won't die. But we trust God. We trust that God is powerful to put those things to death. And so we keep coming back to God and we keep trusting him. We keep seeking his power. We keep seeking his grace. And if we can trust God for those big things, resurrection from the dead, salvation, transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit, if we can trust God for those big things, then we can also trust God for the little things too. It means that as our economy faces the biggest recession that we've seen in 90 years, as we face the likelihood of protracted periods of high unemployment, as we face the likelihood that people will lose their jobs and their homes, as we face the possibility that generations of young people will never be able to do perhaps what they would have liked to have done, As we face all that, we can trust God because God's power is above and beyond whatever difficulty we face. It means that as China and Russia and other countries begin to flex their muscle again on the global stage, as China makes moves to cripple parts of our economy, as they expand into the Asia-Pacific region, as at the same time America declines and seems to tear itself apart from the inside, It means uh, as we worry about what the world might look like with China and Russia as the great superpowers, as we worry about what that might mean for our freedom, as we face all that, we can trust God because we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. We can trust God for what is absolutely and utterly beyond our power, not because faith is powerful, but because The God in whom we believe, the God in whom we trust, is a powerful God. So faith or trust in God changes the way that we live. Faith and trust in God and his promises leads us to act. But trust in God is powerful also because God is powerful. Finally, though, trust in God also lives in the present in the light of the future. We've seen already uh, through this chapter that through faith, some people conquered kingdoms and received back their dead. Uh, Some people got, if you like, instant results, but not everybody did. Let's keep reading from the second half of verse 35. There were others who were tortured, the writer says, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They were went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They were insulted. They were flogged. They were stoned. They were killed. They lost their homes. None of them received what was promised. They received something, but they didn't receive what really mattered. So why did they do it? Why did they put up with all those things? Why did they willingly give themselves to be executed or willingly live the rest of their life in the desert? Why? Well, look back at verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They didn't receive what was promised, but they were waiting, waiting for something in the future. Trusting God meant that they lived now, here in this world, but in the light of the future. You see, that's what trust in God does. It lives now, but it lives now in the light of something to come. It lives in the light of the fact that those future realities are much more important than school grades or sport or money or family or romance or the perfect home or the perfect garden or the perfect lifestyle. It lives in the light of the fact that those future realities are more important even than life here. Those future realities are more important than life itself. That's how 14-year-old Samaru from India lived. He lived in a place where Christians face violence and threats from uh, Hindu extremists. And with his pastor under threat of his life and his father, who was a church elder, having received death threats, 14-year-old Samaru declared that if anything happens to my pastor, I will not fear. I will take charge of the pastor's work and serve the Lord. He was, by all accounts, a passionate Christian. But less than a month ago, on June 4th, he was abducted and brutally murdered. Samaru lived like the people of Hebrews. He lived now in the light of the future. What would it look like for us to live like that? What would it look like for us to follow not just the example of these people in Hebrews 11, but of a 14-year-old brother who died being faithful to Christ in India? What would it look like for us to live like that? To live like these people of whom the world was not worthy? What would it look like for us to say, like the people of Hebrews 11, I don't belong here. I'm a stranger. I'm a foreigner. 
I'm passing through. I'm not at home. I'm looking forward to something better. That's a question I think we need to ask ourselves and to put to ourselves and put to each other. Are we living like that? And if we're not, how can we do that? What would it look like for us to really believe and to really live as though we're heading to somewhere better? That we're strangers and aliens in this world looking forward to a better country whose architect and builder is God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we trust in you. We trust the truth about Christ, that he died for our sins uh, and was raised to life so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we believe he is the exact representation of your being, that he was with you before the world began. From eternity past, he has been your son. And he is also now our great high priest, who has been made perfect forever, and through whom we can draw near to you, as we do now, with great confidence and boldness, knowing that you hear us. Lord, we trust you for the resurrection from the dead. And Lord, we pray that our trust in you would radically change the way that we live. Lord, we pray that it would uproot anxiety from our lives, anxiety about death, anxiety about our future, anxiety about the comfort of our lives, anxiety about what our careers might look like, anxiety about what grades we'll get in our exams at the end of this term. Lord, we pray that whatever the anxieties that we face, that they will be uprooted by our absolute rock-solid trust in you and your promises and your goodness. Lord, we pray that, uh, that that confidence would lead us to live in the present, in the light of the future. Lord, you know how easy it is for us to be encumbered by the things around us, uh, for us to, to slowly uh, accrue more and more things, more and more possessions, more and more things that anchor us in this life. And Lord, we receive those things as good gifts, but too often they become things that anchor us here, that tie us down. We fear losing them. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to sit loose to the world and like the people of Hebrews 11, like our brother in India, Samaru, Lord, we ask that you would help us to let go and to live now in the light of what you've promised. Help us to remember that we're strangers and aliens in this place, that we're on our way to a better country, a country that you have prepared for us through our Saviour, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.